through all of the epidemics I wrote about in the book, the sort of healing power of nature and landscape and well-planned and well-designed parks has actually been a constant through all of these decades. As COVID-19 continues to keep us inside our homes, people are taking solace in one of the only other places left to go public parks, which is actually kind of fitting because some of the first public parks in the U.S. were specifically created to keep people healthy and prevent the spread of disease. But this is just one example of the overlap between city planning and public health. Today we're talking about how diseases have informed city planning in the past and how the pandemic could change the way that cities are designed in the future. From News at Northeastern, this is Litmus, a conversation with Northeastern University's groundbreaking researchers. We connect what's going on in their labs to what's going on in your life. I'm your host, Emily Ernson. My name is Sarah Jensen Carr. I investigate how the built environment affects health outcomes. You are writing a book that chronicles various epidemics in American history from cholera all the way to the current obesity crisis. And then you look at how those diseases either inform city planning or are the result of city planning. If we could look backwards for a minute at some of the infectious diseases like cholera or tuberculosis, how did the layout of cities perpetuate those diseases? And how did cities consequently change because of those diseases? Sure. So a large reason cholera and yellow fever pervaded cities so quickly was because cities were very crowded. So you had tenement housing, you had factories in close proximity to where people lived. You had a lack of personal sanitation facilities like indoor bathrooms and sinks. But there was also a lack of municipal waste services at the time. And so you had stagnant water, you had waste filling up in the streets. And so all of those things combined to contribute to uh, the cholera and yellow fever epidemics or what we might call filth diseases. That, the violence of the disease and how quickly it spread really gave a strong impetus for both urban planning and public health departments to come together and think about how the environment is changed to prevent these diseases. As a result of that, we have a large percentage of the sanitary infrastructure that we have today in, in cities. It was actually built around this time and that took waste underground it conveyed it to places outside the city. It changed the way people thought about paving in cities as well. And if you look back at the documentation and some of the narratives written at, at the time, people were actually arguing against, say, cobblestones in streets because they thought the space in between the cobblestones would hold filth and hold bacteria. And so we also had smoother paving so the streets could be washed down more easily. I think what's interesting about the moment that we're in now is... You know, since we've largely, in, at least in the developed world, conquered diseases like cholera and yellow fever and tuberculosis with a vaccine, a lot more of the diseases we've been dealing with are chronic instead and have to do with behavior. And I write about how urban planning and urban design kind of contributes to behavior and behavior change and how that in turn leads to chronic diseases. But now with the COVID-19 epidemic, we sort of have to think about all those, you know, really urgent issues of sanitation and municipal services again. And I think that's what's interesting about the moment we're in now. We just have not thought about infectious diseases on an urban level in the United States for a very long time. Yeah. And if we could actually use tuberculosis right now as an example, obviously it's it's a bacterial disease. It's very different than COVID-19, but it is spread through respiratory droplets and it also affects the lungs. So obviously medicine has come a long way since tuberculosis, but 
What was the infrastructure's response to mitigating that disease? And could some of those same techniques be applied to the pandemic now? Tuberculosis, I would say, wasn't really on an urban level. More so, tuberculosis was considered in the way we built health facilities, such as sanitariums, right, where people were sent. And that, in turn, did influence a lot of personal architecture at the time, most directly European modernism. So if you read some of the writings from European modernism, they were talking about maximizing sun and light because those were treatments, environmental treatments, that actually proved to be quite effective in treating tuberculosis. And a lot of modern architecture at the time, which was started in Europe and then brought over to the United States, does emphasize bringing in sun and and bringing in light. So there have been some dubious claims floating around about using ultraviolet light to cure COVID-19 patients. This has not been proven, and this is also not what Sarah is talking about. She's talking about sunlight being good at preventing certain diseases because of its ability to kill bacteria. And this has been proven. Sunlight does kill bacteria, especially the kind that like to grow in dust that can cause respiratory disease. And actually, there was a large number of what were called nature resorts built in the late 19th and early 20th century, where people would just try to escape the city altogether to try and cure their hay fever or other respiratory diseases. And so in that respect, access to nature, access to fresh air, access to sun and light. Anecdotally, people would say that they felt much better after going to these nature resorts or or going to these sanitaria that had that sort of access. Sanitariums, for those of you who don't know, were these long-term care hospitals for people, usually with tuberculosis, where part of the treatment was just being outside. So if you look at old photos, you'll see rows and rows of patients in hospital beds outside just sunbathing. That was the cure. Yeah, and just jumping off of that, your book also touches on how there was a huge push to bring in public parks and cities as spaces for people to walk, run, grow food, just like breathe. These are places that are good for our physical health and our mental health. So in light of what's happening right now, do those public parks play the same role? Are they more important now or are they potentially hazardous as places where large groups of people can congregate? Yeah, well, I think they're actually very, very vital right now. It's one of the few public spaces we can access right now. Sort of the one allowable activity most cities and towns and states are allowing is just a walk outside and a walk in the park, as long as you keep that six foot distance. Those parks are very beneficial because they offer sort of an alleviation of of density in the city. And it's a place where people can go and walk. So they're not only getting exercise and fresh air, but as you mentioned, it's good for their mental health as well, just to be in nature for a little bit. I think they're, they're important now more than ever. Can you talk a little bit about historically the push for Central Park and the push for the Emerald Necklace and and why those things were so important at the time? Yeah, so in the um, late 19th and early 20th century, sort of after the urgency of the cholera and yellow fever epidemics had passed, many cities were dealing with respiratory diseases and elite populations could escape the city to go to these nature resorts. People in Boston and New York could go to New Hampshire or Vermont and go up in the mountains and access that fresh air. The case of Central Park and the Emerald Necklace are interesting in particular because they were both designed by Frederick Law Olmsted, who was a landscape architect that actually had a background in public health. He used to be a sanitary officer for New York State. And so he brought the 
this expertise and the experience that he had had as a public health officer and also planning surveys for civil war camps to keep soldiers healthy as they moved around. And he was able to apply that to these large urban parks and make an argument for them to be places, not just for people to access nature for their physical and mental health, but he was also making the argument that those who could not escape the city, those who had to live in the city, the working class, etc., needed access to nature as well. And so on that platform, he was able to build and design these these large urban parks. Yeah. And to that point, something else that you touch on in the book is how there was a push to conflate overcrowded tenements or slums with diseases. And because of that, cities had an excuse to displace huge populations of people for racist or classist reasons. Could you talk about how this played out historically and also how we could be seeing that same phenomenon play out today with China as a scapegoat for this pandemic and the racism that that entails? Right. Historically, what happened is in crowded tenements, which also had a lack of access to personal personal sanitary facilities, right, like personal sinks and privies, they were also occupied by immigrant populations. And so since the density and the lack of facilities in those tenements really accelerated the spread of disease, people would associate those disease with immigrants in the working class. And a lot of people, you kind of passed it off as not the environment itself, but maybe it was a cultural preference, right, of immigrants that are coming in to like live with several family members in one unit. And it allowed a large swath of the population to kind of dismiss it as a problem of personal habits. But the fact is, you know, both of these things were confronted with public health movements. And so there were large personal sanitation campaigns. And there was a move to tear down the tenements and eventually displace workers. This is a recurring theme even after the specter of infectious disease had passed, if we look at the issue of urban renewal in the 60s and 70s, and where a lot of inner cities were, you kind of conceptualize as places of disease. And even if they were not, you know, infectious epidemics at the time, then they were seen as a place where, you know, vice ruled or social disorder ruled. Characterizing the inner city that way allowed people to characterize urban blight as a disease. If you read the literature from the time, a lot of people characterize urban blight as a cancer, which was rising at that time as a primary cause of mortality in the United States. Again, not really knowing the epidemiology of cancer or, or how it was caused, people were able to use cancer as a metaphor in order to knock down large swaths of the inner city and do urban renewal projects instead, which you know over time have been quite destructive to the urban fabric and also displaced people. And do you see parallels between the way immigrants were scapegoated for diseases in the past and how that's playing out now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely parallels, right? In the terms of infectious disease, people want to think it can't happen to them and it must happen to somebody else because of something that they did, right? And we're definitely seeing a playing up that fear on a federal level, I mean, from our president and, um, you know, playing out on a local level where you have, you have stories about people afraid to go to Chinese restaurants even because they're afraid they'll catch the virus, even if it's a family that has been in the United States for generations. And so, yeah, that that is a recurring theme, too, that in the United States, we tend to characterize diseases as coming from another, right, an, another group, like whether it's the working class or immigrants or a certain nationality. I just want to go back to something you said earlier about how in the past, before we understood germ theory or how diseases spread, we used city planning as a way to mitigate diseases. But once biological treatments came around, like vaccines, there was maybe less of an emphasis on city planning 
as a public health solution. Do you think that now we need to be rethinking that approach and maybe return to city planning as a way to prevent diseases? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We need to take into account how city planning affects public health outcomes. One of the results of germ theory and the use of vaccines is that we saw health not just on an individual level, but something that could be treated through medicines, right? That diseases weren't something that were born out of the environment. Not a direct result, but part of this, you know, is at the same time that suburbs were being built further and further out of cities, and we started to have more car-centric development outside of cities. And so as people began to build neighborhoods where it was harder to walk to work, or it was harder to sort of accomplish your, your daily tasks by walking, what we built in a majority of the country was an environment that did not encourage physical activity and also social contact. And a lot of the literature pins the obesity crisis as that car-centric development that's spread across most of the country in the past 40, 50 years. Right. And so one of the ways to treat this sort of behavioral or situational disease would be to change the layout of cities or suburbs to make them more conducive to physical activity. But what about a city planning approach moving forward in terms of infectious diseases like COVID-19? I mean, the epidemics that I covered in the book were all very long lasting, right? In terms of the cholera epidemic, that was in the United States, that was three major outbreaks over a course of 30, 40 years in terms of the obesity epidemic, right? We've been dealing with that for almost 20 years. It's, of course, my hope that this particular pandemic is treated quickly, that we understand more about it more quickly than we have understood epidemics in the past, and that we develop a vaccine quickly. But I do think because we have not dealt with an infectious disease in cities for a long time, it's definitely going to be a factor when we we talk about, you know, reintroducing density back in cities or, or how we design public spaces. How yet? I don't know. As someone who studies this, though, what are some things that you could say just across the board generally be good to make sure that densely populated places are safe? Well, as we've seen with the social distancing measure, making sure that all neighborhoods, especially vulnerable ones, have places to recreate, to get some space for themselves and, and to access fresh air. Through all of the epidemics I wrote about in the book, the sort of healing power of nature and landscape and well-planned and well-designed parks has actually been uh, a, a constant through all of these decades. And so if there was any safe prediction I could make, that would be that would be it. Special thanks to Sarah Jensen Carr, assistant professor of architecture and author of the forthcoming book, The Topography of Wellness, Health, and the American Urban Landscape. Sound editing and mixing by Anthony Polito. Our editor is David Filipov. From News at Northeastern, this is Litmus. For more COVID-19 stories, subscribe to our show and you'll get a notification every time we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>